Hello, and welcome to the Albuquerque Three Angels SDA Church Sabbath School Podcast, presented from the Three Angels Studio right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This week's lesson is number 11, and it's going from September 2nd to September 8th, and the title of this week's lesson is Practicing Supreme Loyalty to Christ. And this lesson is very, very poignant in what its purpose is and what it's directed towards. And I'm looking forward to getting into this whole lesson. I hope you guys are too. So with that, let's go ahead and open up with our memory text. And the memory text is, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. And this is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. But before we get into the whole lesson, let's go ahead and bow our heads real quick for a short prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity today to come and to study your lesson, to study your word, and to feel your presence in our lives. Lord, we thank you for being here, opening our minds and hearts to this message, and guiding us as we go through this week's lessons and learning about who you are and what you want for us. Lord, we thank you for all this, and we ask forgiveness of our sins. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And with that, let's go ahead and read the very first opening part of this lesson. And I really do enjoy reading these parts because it gives you insight into what exactly you're to expect from the lesson of the week. And it states here, in Practicing Supreme Loyalty to Christ, it says, In 2018, an artifact at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. attracted much attention. It was an abridged Bible designed to teach essentials of faith while deleting any passage inciting rebellion by slaves. Published in 1808, the text does not just remove a passage here or there. 90% of the Old Testament is missing, and 50% of the New. Of the 1,189 chapters found in the Bible, only 232 remained. Passages seeming to reinforce the evils of slavery especially in the absence of so much of the Bible's narrative of good news are left fully intact, including such oft-misused text as Servants, be obedient to them that they are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. And that's found in Ephesians 6, 5. Today, in our time and culture, our important challenge is to read Ephesians 6, 1 through 9 in the context of the full story of salvation as it is revealed in the complete Bible. What can we learn as we watch Paul apply the values of the gospel to the flawed social structures of his day? Now, this is quite interesting. I want us to read real quick Ephesians 6, 1 through 9, so that we can understand what Paul is saying before we get into the rest of the lesson. And in 6, 1 through 9 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in nature, or nurture, and admonition, or admonition, admonition? Yeah. admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that they are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as 
men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With God will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Now, we're going to dive into this uh, section of uh, verses as we go through this week's lesson. Now, it's very, very important to understand that, you know, in 1808, here in the United States, slavery was still a very big business, really. And finding out about this, this heavily redacted version of Scripture that only presents the, the, the context of slavery being a good thing is quite scary. You know, in today's society, we're seeing basically the same thing where people are cherry-picking certain verses to fit a narrative, to fit what they want, to present a message that they are trying to present. But as we've seen in Ephesians 6, 1 through 9, versus just the Ephesians 6, 5, which was found to be alone in this, uh, this context, you get the whole picture of what is being explained. It's not just saying that... You know, slaves need to be obedient to their masters. There's more to it. And this is one of the big things that I've noticed as you look throughout history, as you look out through some of these these times of injustice, these times that things were occurring that, you know, today we look upon with, you know, look really down on because it was a blemish in, in our society. But seeing how people were able to take certain verses out of context to justify what they were doing. They were taking the word and they were twisting it in such a way that it, it, it no longer became the word of God. It became the word of man. It's, it's interesting. It's kind of scary when you think about it. And this is why we say it is so important for people out there that are listening, that you read the chapter. You don't just read just the verse. You know, I typically say read the verse before and read the verse after because it gives you more insight into what is actually being said in that verse. This just goes and proves it. Think about that for a second. 1,189 chapters of the Bible, they got rid of, I want to say like 80% of the Bible. 80% and left a 20% margin in there of stuff that they felt would keep slaves from rebelling. Now, most slaves didn't have an education. Most slaves barely understood writing. And this was all in part of the idea of controlling people. You know, when you give people the ability to read, to write, to understand, to comprehend they realize that you are just a man, that you are not who you say you are. And when it comes to Scripture, when a person has the ability to read and understand Scripture, and we've seen this throughout the entire Protestant movement, that when people had the ability to read Scripture fully and not just 
listened to cherry-picked verses that fit a narrative, people understood God better and understood what it meant to treat their fellow man better and realized that the power was not with the church, the power was with God. And that any man, any man, can go before God and ask for forgiveness. That it wasn't an institutionalized process where you had to go before somebody who was a priest or a bishop or something and go to them and ask forgiveness and they would ask forgiveness on your behalf. No. You had a direct line to God through Jesus Christ. That kind of knowledge and understanding was very, very important for people. Because it opened up new avenues. It opened up them to understanding how free they truly were. Well, when you are a slave owner and you've spent large portions of your your income to purchase other people, you're going to do everything you can to make sure that those people have absolutely no idea of what it means to be free, that there is salvation, there is hope, that the masters here on earth cannot compete close to the master of the universe. So it's a very, very deep, very interesting conversation that can be had when it comes to this. And it's very important for us all to understand that as we read scripture, don't cherry pick. Don't don't exclude 80% of the word to find the 20% that fits to your narrative. That's not how it works. But we need to understand, too, that he wasn't just talking about those that were in bondage, those that were slaves, because there were many Christians that were slaves. There were many others that were slaves due to the society that they were in. Now, in here, in verses 1 through 3, Paul is talking about children, of how the children must be addressed and looked at and understood that there is a purpose for them, that it, it it's something that we need to look at in ourselves. Now, tetekna is the Greek word for children. Now, we need a little context here because in Greek tradition, the father pretty much ran everything. And I literally mean everything that his grandchildren, his grand great-grandchildren, all and so on, as long as the father was still alive, he had full authority under all of the children. Now, the word children in Greek referred to many different age ranges. So it could be somebody that was just born, Somebody that's 59, as long as they are not at 60, which is part of Greek tradition, they were under the control of their fathers. In Roman times, in the Roman society, it was until death. So pretty much, if you wanted to get out from underneath your parents, especially your father, you had to wait for him to pass. Now, I know a lot of teenagers out there that are probably going, ugh cannot stand being around my father. They're so strict. They're always doing this. They're always doing that. Yeah, imagine if you had to do that until your father either passed or turned 60. This is what it was like. You know, there was a an understanding that the, pa- 
the the patriarch of the family, which was the father, had control of over everything: business, land use, uh, maintenance of the house, of of all the bond servants that were in the house. You know, the father, regardless of how many children, children, children they had, was always in charge. Now we all know in in the Ten Commandments, there's there is the commandment that says, honor thy father and mother. You know, to obey them. And it says here, we're invited here to respect children as themselves being disciples of Christ and to include them as active participants in worship. This makes the passage of a foundational one for parenting and for ministry to children. So what Paul was explaining to the Ephesians at this time was, your children are not your servants. They are not your, your, your workers. They are not your slaves. They are not your bondsmen. They are individuals under Christ that they should be included in the practice of the faith, that you shouldn't exclude them. You shouldn't push them out saying, oh, you're too young. You don't know what you're doing. No, they are just like us, disciples. They are learning. Now, it does say that, you know, as we're quoting the fifth commandment, which is important, it says, Paul completes his exhortation to children by quoting the fifth commandment, bearing witness to the high value he places on the Ten Commandments as a source of guidance for Christian believers. We all know that the law of, is the law, that God's law has not changed, will not change, cannot change. What Paul is telling the children is, above all things, follow the law of God to be in, in the righteousness of his. He begins the quotation, honor your father and mother, and breaks into it with an editorial comment, which is the first commandment with promise, and then completes the citation that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. The fifth commandment bears witness that honoring parents is part of God's design for human beings to thrive. Respect for parents, imperfect though they may be, will help foster health and well-being. Nobody's parents is perfect. Nobody's. But we do have one perfect parent, and that is God. We are his children. We are his. Now, if we were to look at our children and do the one thing that we think God would never do, which is disown our children. God would never disown us. But if we do something like that, we're not honoring God's law because we're not honoring our Father. We're not honoring the things that are important. But one thing that we do have to remember too is, is we're setting an example for our children. We're showing them how they should be how they should live, how they should thrive in today's world. Are we going to hinder them? Are we going to be punitive towards them when it comes to things in this life? No, we shouldn't be. But we need to let them know that there are consequences for their actions, that there are things that they must be observant of and things that they must look at and be cautious of. 
Because right here it says to foster health and well-being. Any parent knows that the one thing in this world they want the best for their children is that their children live long and happy lives. That their children are in a place that they can thrive, that they can become the things that they want to be, that they can do the things that they put their minds and hearts to. It's important for us to see that, to see that our kids can make it without us. And it's scary to think that there's going to be times that your children may not need you. But our our goal is to make sure that when that day comes where they, they have to make a decision on their own, that we provided them the proper tools and knowledge to make the right decision. And honestly, the right decision is putting their trust and faith in God being part of his church, being part of his family, doing the things that he has asked us to do. Making sure that our children are adhering to God's law, to putting God first in their lives and to inviting that Holy Spirit into their lives to do miracles. Because that's what it is. When the Holy Spirit enters you, the things you do are miracles. Now, Paul continues with more advice for parents. Now, we all have heard the, the saying of spare the rod, spoil the child. Well, Paul is sitting here kind of explaining that a little bit more, but at the same time, he's giving some, some other advice. A, a Sirach, a Jewish document available in Paul's day, advises fathers about the treatment of their sons. He who loves his son will whip him often, pamper a child, and he will terrorize you, play with him, and he will grieve you. Discipline your son and make his yoke heavy so that you may not be offended by his shamelessness. Now, this is from the Sirach 30, 1, 9, and 13. Now, this is very interesting that this is the message that was given to the Jewish people about how to raise your children. But Paul counsel bears a very different tone. He first addresses a negative command to fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there's a positive and a negative. He starts with a negative but ends with the positive one. You know, we need to bring up our children in discipline. When they do wrong, they need to know they've done wrong. When they have misbehaved, we need to make sure that they understand that their behavior is not accepted, that they cannot do certain things. They cannot be, re- well, I, mean, I think the best way to put it, they cannot be brats, pretty much. We need to make sure that our children do not act spoiled, do not act like brats, do not act like terrors. Because in society, they will be looked down upon. And they'll probably end up doing stuff that you know we would never want them to do. They probably end up in places we never want them to end up. But it's important that they understand discipline. And this this is one of the biggest things where we have seen in today's society that father figures in the home are becoming more scarce. That there are very many homes without a father. And I know there are many people out there that grew up in single mom homes that turned out perfectly fine, but statistically speaking, 
homes without a father in it, a single parent home, especially of a mother, the children have a higher chance of becoming juvenile delinquents. They have a higher chance of suicide. They have a higher chance of going to jail or committing a felony or doing some law-breaking activity. It's been seen. It's been studied. It's been noted that in single-parent homes, especially those of mothers, this is what happens. Now, I'm not knocking all mothers because I myself grew up in a single-parent home. In fact, I grew up in a single-parent home on my mom's side, and then I lived with my father for a while, single parents. And being a parent alone, especially when you have a significant other that is not there, when a father is not there or when a mother is not there, it's tough. All that responsibility falling on one person can be extreme. A child is not a product of one person. A child is a product of two coming together. And it takes two to raise a child properly. Now, I'm not saying that every dual-parent home is successful. We have seen many times that the environment in which you are in can play a very large role in how you develop in your life. But when you have a father and a mother living in the same home, working together to raise you, you have a higher chance of being successful, being outside of poverty, having an education, achieving a good job. You have a higher chance of doing that. It's very important that we understand that, you know, children require the presence of both parents. But it also requires that the parents do what they must do to make sure their children are raised correctly. Again, spare the rod, spoil the child. But we also have to understand the other thing, too, is we should not provoke our children to be angry all the time. It's not a good thing. But they need to understand what discipline is. In Paul's day, fathers had complete legal power over their children. As we've seen, in Greek and Roman cultures, the father figure, the head father figure, was always in charge of all the decisions of all of the children. Children were actually seen as property to be sold, to be given away if necessary. It happened quite a bit. There would be parents who were struggling to make ends meet would sell one of their children to somebody in order to be able to feed the other children. It, it happened a lot. Now, here's the one thing. In Paul's day, in this society, fathers had the right to inflict violent punishment, even death, on their children because they were only seen as property. You know, indeed, in some respects, a father's power over his children exceeded a master's authority over his slaves. What Paul was trying to tell him is that there needs to be a different approach to the family. One that promoted loyalty, but also made, especially Christian fathers, rethink how they approach their children. 
And it says, fathers and mothers in the home, you are to represent God's disposition. You are not, you are to require obedience, not with a storm of words, but in a kind, loving manner. They say you attract more, how was it, more, more flies with sugar than you do honey or vinegar or something. I'm trying to remember the exact wording of it, but it's true. You, you attract more with sweetness than you do with stinging admission, admonishment. And I suffer from this, you know, especially this next part. Be pleasant in the home, restrain every word that would arouse unholy temper. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath is a divine injunction. I struggle myself. Um, I struggle greatly with, with anger. It is... It's hard. You know, I, I grew up in a home where my father was in the Army. He did 20 years, retired. That was the environment I grew up in that, you know, it was very, it was strict. But there was no gentleness in how things were spoken of. And that was just, that was my father. That was just how he was. He was very blunt. He was very direct. And... You know, when you're in the military, that's how you have to be. You cannot beat around the bush on certain things. You had to be very direct, and you had to be very purposeful in what you were saying. So, growing up, it was very difficult for me because I was very rebellious. I struggled listening to my father, and, you know, they always say it, it comes back around on you. And, it, you know, my my children are wonderful. They're very intelligent. They are... They are beautiful creatures, and there are times I get angry, and I get upset. And just like any parent, you don't like telling your children to do something more than one or two times. You would like them to do stuff, and that's my biggest problem is trying to find that restraint, to find that, that, that peace to try to explain to them, say, look, you need to do this, please. We've asked you nicely several times. Please, just please do what we ask. It's hard getting to that point without going, you need to get up and go do this or you will be punished. You know, you don't ever want to punish your children. You never do. And it's it's tough when you get to that point. And for me, it's a struggle to, to not get angry, angry, you know. And me and my, my oldest, we have butted heads many times. And she's she's me. She has my personality. She has my stubbornness. And uh, it is so biting me very hard when when I try to get her to do something because I'm seeing myself. And I don't want her to make the same mistakes I've made in my life, even though I would never change anything in my life because where I'm at today is due to the things that I have learned and the things that I have experienced. But it, it's It's tough your children because you want nothing but the best and you want to make sure that they grow up right and trying to skate that line can be very difficult especially in especially nowadays it's so difficult because a lot of people struggle with emotions struggle with understanding struggle with so much in our lives and it's it's hard but the biggest thing we need to remember is our Father in Heaven loves us. That 
when we look at through scripture, sometimes he had to lay lay down punishment because of the disobedience. But it wasn't like every time you disobeyed that you were being being disciplined for it. But there were certain situations that occurred when we look at the Old Testament that God had given every chance, every opportunity, and it got to the point where punishment was required. But he gave chance after chance after chance. He tried his best to work with the people. It's just sometimes people miss the point. But here's the one thing that we need to remember, too, is that uh, is that Paul was addressing a lot more than just the children because, like I said, children were seen as property, same as the slaves that were there. It's This next part is very interesting how it starts. It says... It is startling to hear Paul's address Christian slave masters and to imagine Christian slaves and their Christian slave master seated together in the house churches of Ephesus. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world could differ from the later version in the New World in significant ways. It was not focused on a single ethnic, ethnic group. Urban household slaves were sometimes offered opportunities for education and could work as architects, physicians, and philosophers. Freedom sometimes occurred for these household slaves after a limited period of service. Though most slaves never gained their freedom, in an attempt to acknowledge such differences, a number of recent Bible versions translate the Greek term doulos, slave, as bondservant. And this lesson makes it very, very known that regardless, slavery at any time, in any culture, in any circumstance, is an inexcusable evil, and God will judge and condemn slaveholders according to his infinite judges, justice, and for that we can be thankful. Slavery slavery is one of those topics that it's not a U.S. unique thing. Slavery is still occurring in today's society, today's world. There are slaves in Africa still there are slaves in the Middle East. There are slaves in Asia. This is not a new topic. This has been going on for thousands of years. There is always someone who feels they are more valuable than you are and will enslave you or put you in chains or put you in bondage. That happens every day today still. There are Slaves, and there are movies that talk about this. Um, example is that movie, The Sound of Freedom. talks about child trafficking. That is a slave trade. That is a horrendous trade. And anybody who does not condemn that, who does not look down upon that type of... It's horrible. And the fact that it's still going on today is even worse. Knowing the evils that slavery is, the fact that it is still occurring is shameful. It's 
I, I can go on and on and on about this, but I think what we need to focus here on is is what Paul was addressing to Ephesus that that slaves, yes, they had masters, that it was a practice that was occurring at the time, the slaves themselves had to be treated differently because you, before your master God, how would you feel if God was treating you as you treated your slaves, your bondsman servants? This is what Paul was trying to explain to him. It's like when you sit there and you torture and you beat and you kill and you you do these horrendous things to these people, which are God's children, regardless of status, they are God's children, you will be treated the same. God will provide justice upon you when you do not provide justice for those that you are over. Paul cannot change the slave trade. Paul could not change the practice of slavery. He could not do it. But he was explaining to people that, yes, despite something that he was unable to change, you still had to show treatment of of a better nature to those that were under you. But he also was telling the slaves, too, that, yes, you may... Be a slave of your earthly master. You are not a slave of your heavenly. That you all have a single master, a single creator, a single God. Now, you understand that Paul was telling the slave masters to treat your slaves fairly, to treat them with kindness. Not to torture and mutilate or anything like that, but to treat them as human beings. He also told the slaves, you are in a situation that I cannot change, but you can get through your situation. He is saying, obey your masters, obey them, do as they tell you. Do not raise your hand up against your masters. Don't don't attack your masters. Don't do all these things, but do your best for your masters. Go above and beyond, basically. Because the work, the effort, the the time that you are here and you are serving your master, your earthly master to the best of your ability, Christ will see this. God will see this and he will bless you greatly. Now, Paul presses the substitution upon them in different ways because what he's talking about substitution is to substitute your master for Christ. How would you treat Christ if Christ was asking you to, to do the things in his home? To look at your master as Christ, not the Christ, but a representation of Christ, okay? To 
to look at the work that you're doing, not for your master, but for God. I think it's the best way of saying it, you know, to look at what you're doing in your life as, as someone who is enslaved. Imagine that you're doing the work for God, that you want to do the best for God, that you want to exceed for God. And he says their slave masters are diminished by Paul as their earthly masters, creating that distinguishedness right there, that, that, that line saying these are your earthly masters, but you have a heavenly master that, that loves you greatly. They are to serve with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. You would show respect to Christ. You would show humility before Christ that you would, that you would do everything with an open and loving heart. Paul notes the substitution most clearly in arguing that Christian slaves are to offer genuine service as slaves, not of their masters, but as slaves of Christ. Now, it sounds weird when you hear it that way, that slaves of Christ, he is trying to put a sense of different differentiation in what he is talking about here, what he is addressing, that the works and efforts you do here on earth are being seen by your heavenly master. So if you are purposely not doing things the way you're supposed to be doing them, you could basically say you're not doing the things that in the same way that you would for God. It's, it's a really interesting way that Paul was trying to address this, saying, look, you are in a situation that is tough. He understands that you are owned by somebody. But this person who owns you here is not as great as God, your heavenly master. Please your heavenly master, and in doing so, you're going to be blessed. So what he was trying to inform these these slaves was do the work as if God had asked you to do it. Would you do it half-heartedly? Would you do it eh, so-so? Or would you put everything you can into it to make it the best? Now, we can look at this today for many of us as, you know, we go into a job that you may not be completely satisfied with, that you may not fully appreciate, that you feel that you're just turning the wheel. Now, there's a lot of people who call this silent quitting. You're just there to get a paycheck. You can care less about the work that you're doing. You can care less about your boss, the job itself, so forth and so forth. But what we should be doing is doing our best as if we were working for God. We may not like our bosses. We may not like our jobs completely, but there's nothing stopping us from doing the best while we're there. Because if you're not willing to put in the effort, you're not willing to put in the work now, why should God put in the work for you later? That It's basically what it's saying. Now, in many ways, just like here, it says a slave might feel unappreciated or worse by an earthly master. The believing slave, though, has a master who is attentive, noticing whatever good thing each one does and offering sure awards. 
that's amazing when you think about it, that the toils and troubles that we go through today, you know, to please our earthly masters is setting us up for something better in the end because our heavenly master is seeing the work and the efforts we're putting in, which may not always pay off for us, which may not always benefit us, may not always be the best for us. But the fact that we are serving with an open heart, that we are doing the best of our ability is crucial. It's important. It is key for us as we do our work for God. Now, Paul's final words to slaves is whether he is a slave or free. The word free refers to slave masters, allowing Paul to transition his counsel to them while imagining slaves and slave masters standing on equal footing before Christ in the judgment. That's important. When we are before God, we are all on the same playing field. We are on the same level. And it, him saying that, especially to slave masters, saying, you are not you you are just as worthy of God as the slaves that you own are as worthy of God. There is no difference before God. You both are his children. Now how you treat one another, yeah, that's that's the key. Now he does address these slave masters, these these uh, these lords, as he put it, who had a habit of threatening their slaves and the Lord Christ with whom there is no partiality. So when you are doing things upon your, your, your property or slaves at this time, you are basically doing the same to God. You are doing the same to, to Christ, to your master, your, your savior. How you treat others is how you are treating God. Masters should respond to their slaves with deeds of goodwill governed by their allegiance to Christ. Basically saying, the way you treat your slaves, again, is how you treat God. When you sit there and you treat your slaves in, in a better way, you're treating God in a better way. Because you're both on equal footing. You are not greater than anyone else. You are not over your slaves. Your slaves are not over you. You all fall short of the glory of God. He tells them to stop threatening their slaves, a common practice of a type, in which masters administered a wide variety of punishments, including beating, abuse, being sold, and parted from loved ones, extreme labor, starvation, shackles, branding, and even death. For this, they will be judged by God. Now, Paul was telling these slave masters, you need to look past the social society of what it means to being a slave owner, a slave master, that as you do upon your brothers and sisters, which is your slaves, your property, you are doing the same to God. And that is extremely important for us to know because we're all entitled 
to the glory, to the grace, to the throne before God. We are all going to be before God at one point. The question is, is when God asks you, how did you treat your brothers and sisters? What are you going to say? That you beat them? That you mistreated them? That you sold them? That you did all this stuff to them? He's going to look at you and say, why? Did you not realize that these are the children of Christ? That these are the property of the creator of the universe? And you treated that, those people, that property, the children of God, the way you did? God's going to judge us for that. He, that's what he was telling, telling these slave masters is how you treat these people. God is going to look upon it and judge you for it. And the same is going back to the, to the slaves themselves. The way you treated your master, God's going to judge you for it. So it was very interesting at this time. This is how Paul was trying to you know, get across to 